uh, being one church over four weeks, it's given me the chance to get to know some of you, uh, to try to remember some of the names, and it's been an absolute delight, let me tell you. And I, I, I will leave after today with very fond memories of this congregation and uh, hope to visit again uh, soon. Today I'm going to be uh, bringing a, an Australia Day sermon uh, and just recognising that increasingly Australia Day has become a topic of conversation and some debate uh, over recent years and the uh, issue of whether or not it should be held on the 26th of January has been at the centre of that conversation. Um, I do want to recognise today that as we celebrate the birth of our nation, we are actually celebrating the coming of white people uh, to this land. Uh, Indigenous people were here long before us and this is their land in a very special sense and we are very latecomers to this place. Nevertheless, I trust that my message today will be a great encouragement to you as I share some things I've discovered uh, in recent uh, days that have been a great encouragement to me. I thought that I really should begin with a, an Australian story. So this is one I found. Uh, it's a, a, at an American Bible college where there was a large number of students from overseas countries. It was the practice each morning in the devotional period for a different student to pray publicly in his or her own language. And on one occasion, the dean asked a student from Australia to step forward and to pray in Australian. Well, feeling that something special was required of him, the student went to the rostrum, bowed his head and said, Parramatta, Chinkapook, Maruchidor, Kui, Udnadatta, Wagga Wagga, Billabong, Chalkerup, Patchawalak, Woolamaloo. And the Assemble College responded with a fervent, Amen. <laughs> On the 26th of January 1788, the Union Jack was raised on a clearing in Port Jackson. The 11 ships of the First Fleet had completed their intrepid journey and the history of white settlement in Australia had begun. And yesterday we celebrated that event. If you go to Sydney today to the corner of Bly and Hunter Streets near Circular Quay, you'll find a monument not far from where that flag was raised. And the monument commemorates not what took place on the 26th of January 1788, rather an event that took place eight days later. And a plaque on the monument reads, to the glory of God and in commemoration of the first Christian service held in Australia, February the 3rd, 1788, Reverend Richard Johnson, BA, the chaplain, being the preacher. Now I want you in the next moments to try to get a feel for what it was like to be part of Australia's first church service. The history books tell us that the site for the service was a large gum in the settlement. The weather had been suffocatingly hot, as it often is this time of the year in Sydney. And out in the harbour are moored 11 ships, the ships of that first fleet, having carried just over a 1,000 people from Southampton. 
There's the governor, Arthur Philip, 20 officials and their servants, 213 marines with some wives and children, more than 750 convicts and one chaplain and his wife, as well as one eternal optimist, a certain James Smith, the man who actually stowed away on the first fleet. What was he possibly thinking? We are told that Captain Arthur Philip wasn't a religious man, but as it was expected, he ordered that the entire company were to be present at this service. So here we have a congregation of 1,000 people attending Australia's first church service. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? But think about it. Who attended this inaugural service? A governor who didn't want to be there. Soldiers who didn't want to be there. Convicts who didn't want to be there. All of them in this God-forsaken, inhospitable land of heat, humidity, flies and mosquitoes. And finally there was this young chaplain and his wife. He had been appointed to, the, to accompany the first fleet to the new settlement. I can almost hear the words of the bishop as he gave Richard Johnson the news. Richard, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is I've found your parish. And so here we have this minister standing up in front of a literally captive congregation none of whom wanted to be there. Now, as a preacher, I know all too well the difference between a sympathetic, interested congregation and one that simply does not want to be there. So here was the challenge. What could this young preacher say that might be appropriate in such desperate conditions? What could he say that might inspire hope in such a hopeless situation and joy in such a joyless environment. Well, on the monument near Circular Quay, the text for his sermon is, is inscribed. It was Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And when I first read these words, I could hardly believe my eyes. How, how could he have chosen that passage of Scripture? The poor man must have had heat stroke in his preparation time. A modern translation of this verse is, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I am certain that none of those listening that day could think of one of God's blessings in the situation they faced. What was on his mind as he prepared this first sermon in Australia? And without knowing anything more about Richard Johnson, you might be tempted to think that he was a pious, upper-class, highly educated, out-of-touch parson who couldn't even pick a marginally appropriate Bible verse for his first sermon in New South Wales. Well, I've done a bit of research on Richard Johnson and have been blown away by what I found out about this man and what led him to being appointed as chaplain to the First Fleet. I'm going to share this with you today. 
There was huge excitement in England when it was announced that an expedition was being sent to Botany Bay to establish a colony there. It fired the imagination of many people, including John Newton. John Newton, remember, was the former slave trader who was wonderfully converted. John Newton was the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. He subsequently became a minister of the gospel. John Newton was a leading figure in a group of evangelical clergy and laymen called the Eclectic Society, founded in 1783, whose interests included prison reform and missions. This society discussed how they could further the cause of the gospel at Botany Bay. They became interested in the choice of a chaplain to sail with the First Fleet. Who would be the best man for the job and who would choose him? John Newton knew that such a ministry would be a very difficult one. Listen to what he wrote. A minister who should go to Botany Bay without a call from the Lord and without receiving from him an apostolical spirit, the spirit of a missionary, enabling him to forsake all, to give up all, to put himself into the Lord's hands, to sink or swim, had better run his head against a stone wall. It's pretty plain, isn't it? John Newton and his friends knew that they needed a man called by God. Now, Newton was a friend of William Wilberforce. Remember, he is the man who led the movement to see the abolition of slavery. Wilberforce was a close friend of the newly elected 25-year-old Prime Minister, William Pitt. And so through Wilberforce, John Newton and his friends suggested to the Prime Minister a name, that of a 33-year-old Yorkshireman, the Reverend Richard Johnson. And as a result, in October 1786, Richard Johnson received a royal warrant as chaplain to the colony of New South Wales. So who was Richard Johnson. He worked as a farmer before studying at Cambridge and was ordained as a minister of the gospel in 1783. He was appointed to a rural parish in Hampshire before his appointment as chaplain to the First Fleet. Richard was married to Mary Burton a month after his appointment and just five months before the First Fleet sailed. This was going to be some honeymoon. Before he sailed, members of the Eclectic Society introduced him to two societies that had been formed earlier that century, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel and the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge. And they provided him with Bibles and Christian books for the colony. Richard Johnson was a man on a mission. He had a passion to see men and women come to know Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. His appointment was neither random nor haphazard. He wanted to be the chaplain on the first fleet and his desire was based on a call of God on his life. And if you want an insight into his heart for the gospel and for the lives of those he served, listen to what he wrote in a book published 14 years after the arrival of the First Fleet. 
This book was written for and to the inhabitants of the colony. I have told you again and again that Christ is the way, the truth and the life and that there is no coming to God with comfort either in this world or in that which is to come but by him. He has told you so himself and the apostle assures you that there is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby they can be saved. Look unto him and you shall be saved. If not, you must be damned. This is the plain truth, the express declaration of the Bible. Life and death are set before you. Permit me then, as your minister, your friend, and a well-wisher to your souls, to press these serious and weighty considerations home upon you, upon your consciences once more. I hope and believe that I have asserted nothing but what can be proved by the highest authority, the word of the living God. They certainly deserve your closest and most careful attention, since it is plain beyond a doubt that upon your knowledge or ignorance, your acceptance or rejection of this gospel, your everlasting happiness or misery must depend. This man is fast becoming my hero. And in case you are tempted to think that Richard Johnson was just a passionate preacher of the gospel, and nothing more. Listen to what else he achieved in the new colony. It took five months before he was able to house his wife in a little cottage built from cabbage tree palms and thatched rushes. And by the end of 1788, he was growing enough vegetables for his own needs. He soon became known as the best farmer in Sydney town. He saw the need around him every day. He baptised, he married, he buried. It was his task to be present with those who were to be executed. He prayed with them on the scaffold. He held services of worship every Sunday in open air or sometimes in a large store. By the end of 1790, he had begun to hold regular services for the settlers at Parramatta and in the following year at the convict settlement of Toongabbie. Richard Johnson was the pioneer of education in Australia. He was concerned for the education of all children, whether they belonged to convicts or to the free men. By March 1792, he had set up schools in Sydney, Parramatta and on Norfolk Island. He was also responsible for setting up a fund to care for orphans. But listen to this. Richard and his wife had a special desire to befriend the indigenous people who were being dispossessed of their land by the white settlers. When their daughter was born in 1792, they gave her an indigenous name, Milba. Being the only minister in the colony was full of challenges and obstacles. His evangelical preaching and disposition was tolerated by Governor Philip but was despised by Philip's replacement, Major Francis Gross, who openly worked against him. If ever a man needed a call of God on his life to drive and sustain him, surely Richard Johnson was that man. And so on February the 3rd, 1788, the Reverend Richard Johnson stands under a gum tree before 
the gathered congregation and leads the first Christian service held in this great land. He reads from Psalm 116 verse 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And we don't know the detail of the sermon that day, but I suspect that the benefits Richard Johnson listed that day were not related to the place where they found themselves in or the situation they found themselves in. Rather, I believe he would have listed the benefits of knowing a God of love and forgiveness and grace and hope, a God who saves. Friends, we are here today because of a heritage that began that very first Australia Day. 230 years have passed, but in my mind, in many respects, not much has changed. Although we are now a wealthy nation and a free people, a lot of Australians share the sense of despair and hopelessness experienced by those at that first church service. In our society today, many people are lonely and hurting. There's been a loss of self-respect and respect for one another. Human dignity is diminished as we see people using people rather than relating to people. Richard Johnson sets before us an example of what it means to represent Christ in our nation. And what a blessing to know that at the very beginning of White Settlement, there was a man like this representing the love and grace of God. But here is the challenge, I believe, for each of us as people of God to believe that God can use us to bring light into the darkened lives of those we meet, those we love, those we work with, those we live next door to, uh, to bring hope into lives that have given up on hope uh, and to speak words of salvation into lives of people who believe they are beyond redemption. As Christians and as Australians, that is our call. So let me close with the words from that first chaplain to New South Wales from the book he wrote to the people he loved. This will be my daily prayer to God for you. I shall pray for your eternal salvation, for your present welfare, for the preservation, peace and prosperity of this colony and especially for the more abundant and manifest success of the Redeemer's cause and kingdom, and for the effusion and outpouring of his Holy Spirit, not only here, but in every part of the habitable globe, longing, hoping, and waiting for the dawn of that happy day, when the heathen shall be given to the Lord Jesus for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, and when all the ends of the earth shall see, believe, and rejoice in the salvation of God. I am your affectionate friend and servant in the gospel of Christ, Richard Johnson. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we just pause now uh, on this weekend, this Australia Day weekend, and we look back and we give thanks that in the midst of all that was happening uh, on that First Australia Day, there, there was a man and his wife 
who knew you, who loved you, and was ready to represent you in this place. Father, we thank you for the inspiration that Richard Johnson and his wife can be to each one of us. And I pray that you would help us uh, this day and in the days ahead uh, to represent you well, to be ready to speak words of salvation, of love, compassion, justice and hope to all people uh, and especially to those we love and meet. Lord, we pray this blessing uh, for each one of us and for this church in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have have this beautiful opportunity uh, to just reflect for a moment and, and make a response just suggesting up on the screen there that as we celebrate Australia Day, what is your prayer to God in the light of today's message? It might be a prayer of just thanksgiving for Richard Johnson. It might be a prayer uh, that's more personal and relates to your mission in life. It might be a prayer for your nation. Uh, uh, whatever it is that you, you would like to say to God, say it in a prayer. And I'd love everyone to join in today. Uh, this is personal, it's, it's, it's something you don't have to put your name to. Uh, dear God, in the light of what we've just heard, this is my prayer to you.